0: Okay, let's go ahead and get started with a word of prayer, if we could, please. Our Father, we do thank you for the great privilege we have to come together this morning as the body of Christ. Pray that we would uh, show our love toward one another, that we would all be edified by being with the saints, that you would accomplish your purposes and your will for us this morning, Lord, that you would teach us from your scriptures by the Holy Spirit, Pray that he would have freedom to illumine our minds and show us the truth. And Lord, we thank you for these words written by Ezekiel that we'll look at this morning. Uh, they're very old, but yet very pertinent to where we live today. So for these things, we give you thanks and praise in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this is week number 35 in our study in eschatology and Last week we began to look at uh, Ezekiel 40 through 42 in which the temple is described. This would be what I believe is the temple during the millennial kingdom. Uh, We compared it to the temple that um, Solomon built and then the one that Zerubbabel rebuilt that was eventually expanded by uh, Herod. And those temples are much smaller than this temple that's given in Ezekiel. Um, There's great detail given. We'll look at some of that this morning about this temple. Um, We said that, uh, we looked at the exterior wall, and I need to give you some clarification this morning, but the exterior wall was 500 reeds by 500 reeds. It's a square, Uh, a reed there being, we said, about 11 feet, so it's, it's it's more than a mile on each side. So this is a very, very large area that is the temple area. There's a wall all the way around it that separates, the scriptures say, the holy from the profane. So once you go uh, inside this wall, then you're on holy ground. And it's a, a full square mile Uh, The temple proper is not that big, and that's what we'll look at this morning, but the area for the temple is very large. Interesting that even though there are three different temples in the scriptures that I believe are described, this one being much larger in area than the others, the nave, what is called what we would think of as the holy place, and the holy of holies are the same size in all three of these temples. They're each 60 cubits by 60 cubits, uh, 60 by 20, um, the nave being 40 by 20, the holy of holies being 20 by 20. And so, and they're the same in all three temples um, to the best that we understand. Zerubbabel's is not dimensioned. We're not given those dimensions other than a decree by, I believe it was Cyrus. And, but they probably built it right on top of the same foundations that were there originally. So it probably is the same size. They certainly had the, um, the documents that had been given to Solomon, those that had been written down of the description of the temple. And so they knew how big, uh, when Zerubbabel was rebuilding, how big the original temple was and what its dimensions were. So um, they, they probably built it to the same size also. Uh, the only thing that's different in the um, original temple and in the one that Zerubbabel rebuilt, we know there was a curtain between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. No mention of a curtain here in Ezekiel. Um, it's just spoken of as where God dwells, where his throne is, um, with no, and that's talking about the nave and the Holy of Holies, and no, no description given of a curtain, which makes sense because we know the curtain was rent uh, from top to bottom when Jesus Christ died on the cross. So um, there is no mention anywhere in here about a curtain uh, inside the nave of this temple. So um, I gave you uh, a couple of diagrams this morning. Um, The one that we'll talk about is not the cool looking temple, it's the one on the back. um, Is what we'll be looking at today, but um, the thing I want to point out about the ones on the front, the two, um, one an isometric, one just an aerial view of the temple. um, This is showing the wall that we began to look at last week that was described as um, a rod tall and a rod thick, and a rod being approximately 11 feet as we talked about. <clears throat> the, um, that wall is not the wall that is a mile by a mile. Okay, there is a, another wall that's called the outer wall that is the mile by mile. We don't know how big it was. We don't know how tall it was. That's the wall that was 500 reeds. This wall here is the temple proper, okay, where you have the uh, 11-foot thick and 11-foot high wall. It's 500 cubits by 500 cubits, so much smaller than the mile by a mile. A cubit, um, you know, being 11 feet, this is only... um, you know, it's not as big as what we were looking at last week. Um, so, the outer wall is 500 reeds long. This one is 500 cubits in size. And so, this one is six times as smaller than the outer wall. This a mile by a mile. So, nobody tries to draw the ones mile by a mile because the details will become so minuscule. So anytime you see a diagram of the temple of Ezekiel, they're talking about the 500 cubits by 500 cubits, which is what is drawn here, not the mile by mile. So there's a lot of area around this temple proper that is also called holy ground that is where nothing is. Okay, there may be trees there and that kind of stuff, but there's no, um, there's no buildings, there's no structures. Um, this is, is set off. And we'll see that when we get to the division of the land, especially the prince's land, we'll talk about that, that this temple and the mile by mile is inside of the prince's land. And so we'll look at all that a little later on and have another diagram that shows you how the, the prince's land was laid out relative to the 12 tribes land. And we'll look at all that uh, with other diagrams in the future. So anyway, I wanted to give you this so that you could, um, we're going to talk about the gates some today. And you can see in that bottom picture on the front of just how large these gates were. I mean, they're huge in size, um, and they lead to things that aren't as tall as they are, but they, they are gigantic. And, um, and so we'll walk through some of the details of these. And the picture is given on the back as an aerial view of what the gate looks like. And so uh, you can see the steps on one side and then a porch on the um, other side that leads out into the outer courtyard of the temple. So this is how you get into the temple. You don't try and scale the 11-foot-tall wall you walk through these gates. And there's several interesting things that we'll talk about in these gates. So we're going to try and get through most of chapter 40, or at least the first two-thirds of it today. Um, So we'll begin... um, Let me just read from verse 5 and go down a little further. So Ezekiel chapter 40, beginning in verse 5... And behold, there was a wall on the outside of the temple all around, and in the man's hand was a measuring measuring rod of six cubits, each of which was a cubit and a hand breadth. So he measured the thickness of the wall, one rod, and the height, one rod. Then he went to the gate, which faced east, and went up its steps, and measured the threshold of the gate, one rod, and one rod in width and the other threshold was one rod in width the guard room was one rod long and one rod wide and there were 5 cubits between the guard rooms and the threshold at the gate of the gate by the porch of the gate facing inward was one rod then he measured the porch of the gate facing inward one rod he measured the porch of the gate 8 cubits and its side pillars, two cubits. And the porch of the gate w- was faced inward. The guard rooms of the gate toward the east numbered three on each side. And three of them had the same measurement. The side pillars also had the same measurement on each side. And he measured the width of the gateway, ten cubits. And the length of the gate, thirteen cubits. Okay, so he got all these measurements, right? All these detail that he's giving, and in in the diagram I gave you, they actually have the dimensions written out, but they have them in feet, I believe. And, you know, we talked about that, what I guess you would call long cubit, which is a cubit and a hand breadth, can either be 21 inches or 22 inches, depending on who you're talking to. This particular diagram uses 21 inches okay I like 22 because it gives you 11 feet to the measuring rod exactly this one gives you six inches less than that it's okay you know nobody knows for sure Um, my hand is probably the three inch size there's other people who have a four inch hand and we're not going to argue about that but this particular diagram uh, gives you um, it in 21 inches per the long cubit now you come to this wall and there are steps that lead you up in this particular um, description we're not given how many steps there are in all the other gates that we're we are given that there are eight steps so the assumption is there are eight steps that lead up now eight steps if you think about it In today, usually, you have somewhere around eight or nine inches per step. So you're climbing up about five feet in eight steps to get up to the porch level of this gate. And then as you walk into the gate, interesting, there are guard rooms. Okay, and there's six of them. There's three on each side. So there's room for a lot of guards. And so the question could be raised, right, why guards? Why are there guards in the millennial temple of where, you know, Christ is reigning over the whole world and especially over Israel? Why would they have guards at the gates? That's a good question because, and we'll see later, there are more guards inside. And so I think there is a description in here that says um, that no one who is uncircumcised can go into the temple at all, not even into the outer courtyard. And so I think these guards are there to keep people who are not supposed to go into the temple from going into the temple, because that would be an abomination before the Lord who dwells in this temple. And so you have these guards who are standing at the, at the um, entrance, and there, we'll see soon there are three of these gates, and they all have guards at them to protect the um, people from going in. Look at, look at chapter 44 and verse nine. And I'll I'll jump back and forth because you don't, I mean obviously you can't write down everything In one place. But down in 44 verse 9. Thus says the Lord God. No foreigner. Uncircumcised in heart. And uncircumcised in flesh. Of all the foreigners. Who are among the sons of Israel. Shall enter my sanctuary. And so. God himself says. That these people. Are not supposed to go in. To the. Uh, sanctuary. Now turn over to chapter, or look back at verse 1 of 44 and you'll see where he says, then he brought me back by the way of the outer gate. So the outer gate, the gates that we're describing where you got eight steps that go up. By the outer gate of the sanctuary which faces the east and it was shut. So the sanctuary that is being described here is the whole temple area, the outer court, the inner court, and the actual um, nave and the Holy of Holies. That's what's being described here. And God says, don't let anybody who is uncircumcised in heart or in his flesh come into the temple. Now, those people who aren't circumcised in their heart would be unbelieving people. They're in Israel, but they're apparently not Israelites because they're not circumcised in their flesh. And they're not circumcised in their heart, meaning they are not saved. They're not true believers. They're in the land of Israel, which is permissible. It was in ancient days. It is in the millennial temple, in kingdom, but they're not allowed into the sanctuary. And so you've got guards at the gates. To keep them from coming in, and um, you know, a lot of people think these guards are the lower-level priests. They may be, but their job is to guard the gate, and you got a lot of them. And I mean, you got six rooms for them, so um, they're there all the time, and they don't allow people in. Now, this gate that is described here is given in some detail, and we'll look at a little bit of that. Um, But the other gates that are described in this chapter refer back to this gate, okay, which helps us a little bit. So um, the gates aren't different. And let me just show you that, um, that these gates are all the same, all six of them, the ones that lead into the outer courtyard, and the ones that lead into the inner courtyard. you got gates around both, and you can see that in that diagram, these huge gates, um, and they're all the same. They're they're identical to each other, so you don't have to go through. The, I mean, they do go through the description six times, but you don't need to walk through them, right, because they you'll find out they're all the same. And um, so I'm looking for the place where we can... Look and see that. I know I have it written down here. Well, and it's different than how you usually think about the millennial it's kingdom and not it? it right. people just assume about the millennial reign it's, it's not, not yeah everybody's a believer Jesus is reigning as
1: God and he's got everything under control and it's bliss
0: right no that's the
1: farthest from the truth well and that's what yeah. you've got to ponder and re, kind of rebuild that reality into your head because there's hostility here
0: oh you know, yeah I mean Right, and, and I mean, it says it in the Psalms, and it says it in Revelation a couple of times. How does Jesus rule? With an iron rod, right? So that's not gentle. I mean, there there are laws, and you must obey the laws, and anytime time there's an uprising against the law, it's immediately uh, extinguished. But there are a lot of unbelievers on the planet who... You know they give allegiance to Jesus because they're made to, sort of like the king of the world, you're going to give him allegiance and you're going to march in front of him and you're going to be respectful and all that, but they don't believe he is who he says he is. And there's a lot of those people that are still alive during the Millennial Kingdom. Now there are people, I disagree with this, but there are people who believe that in the Tribulation War every unbeliever is killed. But my question to them is, show me that in the scripture. It says all the army is killed for sure. But you don't send everybody into the army. There's still a lot of people left back home. And so all those people the scripture is silent about. Does not say they're killed. I mean, it does say that uh, half the population on the planet is killed. But there's still billions of people left. And so I think that all these nations that the Scripture says will honor Christ are not believing nations. There are a lot of unbelievers. Now, they're ruled and reigned by believers. And I believe that's you and I and all the other saints through the ages, except for the Israelites, are ruling over the world. And over over the 12 tribes of Israel, you have the 12 apostles reigning as their princes. But over the rest of the world, there's still a lot of unbelievers. And, and, and I, I, uh, you know, if someone says, no, they're all killed, then say, show me that in Scripture, where it says that all unbelievers are killed in the tribulation. It, I don't find it. It doesn't say that. And many that hold to that are some of the most faithful... Oh, ideas. absolutely. And they say, well, it's obvious that everybody's killed. And I say, it's not so obvious. It doesn't say it anywhere that everybody's killed. <laughs> Yeah, of his God rights. Divine prerogative. Right. He's going to return as the second Adam. Right. Which is really the highest level of achievement that any human. Human, thank you. It's almost hard to say that.
1: It is. Our Lord, right? Right. Christ the millennial reign is that second Adam who has again emptied himself of much of his divine prerogatives and is going to rule for a thousand years as the resurrected Lord in, in that glorified body as the saints will be, and then what are the implications of that? Because as God, he could just,
0: right? right he, he could do anything, yeah, he could do anything he wants to, and yet he permits... Because it shows the blessing of Israel, which is the purpose in him coming back and reigning, is to show the blessing of Israel that God can do with his creation whatever he desires, that he keeps his promises, that he's faithful, that he is the Lord. I mean, that's the whole purpose in Christ coming back to reign, and and we miss that. We think it's to come reign so everybody can have a good time. And it's not that at all. It's for his name's sake that he comes and rules and reigns. And we, we, I think we often have just the wrong picture because we've been taught the wrong picture. And it's not what the scriptures reveal when you get down and you read what they say.
1: And it brings you back to these gates. These are literal, necessary
0: gates. Yeah, these, I mean, there's this huge wall and there's gigantic gates that you have to walk through, very glorious, very um, ornate, and they're guarded By lots of guards. So, you know, we don't know if the guards are holding swords or, you know, it doesn't give that description. But you're not going to get through if you're not supposed to go in, is what it comes. And these are big gates. So there's got to be a lot of guards because they're wide and they're large. You know, they're 75 feet deep and they're 25 feet wide. So as you walk through these gates, there's a lot of area that you've got to keep people who shouldn't be coming in from coming in. So, you know, do they have term stocks? It doesn't say that, right? <laughs> you
1: know, Jesus could walk through walls and, and, and pass through time, space, right? A- a- after he had... Uh, right. That, that conjures up a whole nother dimension of the yeah, It does.
0: <laughs> Yeah. Does that mean we'll be able to walk through? I don't know. Um, so anyway, um, the description mm-hmm. is very different than um, how we often think about it. Um, and all you have to do is just read and we'll, we'll get that picture. And I didn't find my reference so we'll just keep going. Um, so as you continue into this um, area and you pass through the six rooms that have guards in them and, and there's actually a barrier wall between you and the guards it's not big, um, it's a cubit tall, so it's only 18 inches tall, but it's to keep you from going into the guard rooms, basically. And so you walk through the middle of the passageway, um, and um, th- this gate, like I said, is, is, it's got a lot of area. A lot of people could be in this gate at any given time. The guard rooms just to give you an idea. There's, you know, there's three of them, um, are 25 feet apart. As you go in, so if you get by one guard gate, you probably, I mean, set of guards, you're probably not going to get by the next one, and certainly not the third one. Um, so um, they're there. Your 40 through. Yeah, which is what I read. Um, so I mean, it gives all those descriptions. Now, um, there are side pillars, and these are kind of like at the corners of the gates is the way you would think about it. These things are, it says 60 cubits tall, so that's 90 feet. So, it's like, you know, nine-story building. Just, and it says they're only six cubits by six cubits. So, I mean, they're, they're not huge but they're very tall and so very ornate and they'd be at the beginning and at the end of the gate and you can see that in that diagram that it shows these huge gates especially compared to everything else around them where which is not very tall I I was say, the, the whole terrain has been flattened right yeah and, and, the, and the, the mountains have been flattened and Jerusalem has been raised up well and you know and we believe that that mile by a mile is, is terrain and the, there are debates about where the temple is going to be. I happen to think it's going to be where the original temple was. It just makes sense. Um, but um, that area is not a mile by a mile in size. The mountaintop is not. And so there's got to be some flattening done. And certainly in tribulation we see where there's a lot of geographical, topological changes that happen. And uh, so... it will be flattened and you know which means you can see way out too especially when you're walking through these gates that are elevated that you can see out all you know over the whole um, place and then you you, once you get through the gates you come out onto a porch and so you're looking out over the temple uh, up on this porch and then around the wall all the way around and around the gates, there is a lower um, court. It's, it's part of the courtyard, but it's lower. It's down. It's depressed. And you can see that in the diagram. He shows it pretty well. That all the way around this, there's this lower area. And I don't know if that's for drainage or, you know, what. But um, anyway, the, you, you walk out of this porch and you can see all of this. Expand uh, it expanded out in front of you. And then it's a 100 cubits, 150 feet, until you come to the gate that goes to the inner court. So there's this big area all the way around that you can walk out and, and enjoy. You know, uh, we don't know what's going to all be there. But um, anyway, it's, it's, it's a pretty good-sized area. The river of life is there. So. Well, the river of life is there. It starts, actually, at the edge of the wall. And we'll talk about that because Ezekiel gives great description of this um, trickle of water that becomes ankle deep and then knee deep and then chest deep and then way over his head um, before he ever gets to the sea, um, just as he's wading out in it. And it's fresh water. And it connects to the Mediterranean Sea on one side and to the Dead Sea on the other side. So, the Dead Sea gets fresh water in it, and becomes alive and teeming with lots of game. So, um, very, very different. Anyway, we'll get to all of that uh, eventually. Now, all of these chambers have windows in them. And you can see that's depicted pretty well in that view of the gate, that it shows the windows that are in each chamber. And all the way around, there are windows, I assume so you can get light in, so you can get air in. You know, um, again, there's a lot of people in this gate, and it could get somewhat uncomfortable to have that many people if you didn't have some fresh air coming in. so there there are these um, uh, windows all the way around. And then interestingly, I wouldn't have thought this, there are ornaments on the pillars and on the walls, and the ornaments are palm trees. And see, so palm trees. So you think, you know, where are palm trees in the scripture? Are there palm trees in Israel? I mean, apparently, there were a lot of them because you remember, as Christ came into um, Jerusalem for the um, for his entrance, that they were laying palm trees on the ground and they are palm branches on the ground, and they were saying, Hosanna to who he, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, uh, which is a quote out of Psalm uh, that they were singing as Christ came into the triumphal entry and laying palm branches on the ground as a way to honor him. So these palm branches certainly speak of honoring of the Lord. Then you'll, if you read over in Revelation, when there's this great, multitude of people in around the lamb it says and this is I think chapter 11 Um, and they're dressed in white robes and they're holding palm branches it says and waving them to the to the lamb and so um, one of the elders walks up to John and says who are these people and John goes, I don't have a clue who these people are. You know, but you know who they are, so tell me. And he says, these are those who come out of the tribulation. Which means these are true believers who are killed during the seven-year tribulation. That's the way you get out of the tribulation, is you get killed. And there's a multitude of them, and the scripture says, so many that you could not count them. So a lot of people place faith in Jesus Christ during the tribulation, after the rapture, and are transformed, become true believers, and then are killed. Lots of them. And we know that's true because the Antichrist, when he can't get to Israel, it says that he's enraged and he goes after the others, which would be people who aren't Israelites, who are true believers. And he kills them. Um, If you look at Muslim theology, they believe that Jesus Christ comes back and kills all the Christians because they incorrectly believe that he's the Messiah. It's like turning Christian theology on its head, right? Um, That's what they believe. I mean, you can read it. It's explicit. It's not hard to understand. Um, But we obviously don't believe that. We believe it's the Antichrist and the false prophet who kill all the Christians, all that they can find. I believe there's some that live through There's others who say, no, every single one is killed. And I can say, show me that in scripture, because it doesn't say that. Um, So anyway, we'll we'll talk about that another day. Um, So um, this palm branch, this palm trees that are, uh, apparently they're carved and then hung on the walls, is what it says, and on the the pillars. Apparently, they're there to simply honor the Lord, to show this Solomon's is a place. Well, oh, the, yeah, Solomon's and Temple had the same thing. They on the surfaces right.
1: of the panels. you They lay the cherubim lines and palm trees. Right. And palm trees were the first place of refuge in the Exodus as
0: well. Yeah, and so um, there's some who believe this uh, represents fruitfulness of the Christians, could be. Um, but every place we see them in Scripture, they're there to either give refuge or to honor the Lord. And so um, I I would not have thought that he would have chosen, you know, you would think cherubs or seraphim or something like that, but no palm trees is what um, the ornaments are. And they're, they're all over the place. They're on these gates, and they're on all the inner gates. And so you've got all these palm trees, uh, palm tree ornaments that are hanging everywhere. Now, um, okay, let's read a a few more verses here. Um, Where did I stop at? Um, Yeah, I think I stopped at 11. 11. Let's just read eleven. And he measured the width of the gateway ten cubits and the length of the gate thirteen cubits. There was a barrier wall one cubit wide in front of the guard rooms on each side, and the guard rooms were six cubits square on each side. He measured the gate from the roof of one guard room to the roof of the other guard room, a width of twenty five cubits from one door to the top top door to the door opposite. He made the six pillars, he made the side pillars 60 cubits high. That's that 90 feet that we were talking about. The gate extended round about to the side of the pillar of the courtyard. From the front of the entrance gate to the front of the inner porch of the gate was 50 cubits. So that's the the, uh, length of the entrance. There were shuttered windows looking toward the guard rooms and toward their side pillars within the gate all around, and likewise for the porches, and there were windows all around, and on each side pillar were palm tree ornaments. So there are the palm tree ornaments. Then he brought me into the outer court, and behold, there were chambers and a pavement made for the court all around, thirty chambers faced the pavement. The pavement, that is the lower pavement, was by the side of the gates corresponding to the length of the gates. So you have this lower depressed area all around the gate. And it it actually extends in front of the chambers also. Then he measured the width from the front of the lower gate to the front of the exterior gate of the inner court, a hundred cubits on the east and on the north. Okay, so it's 100 cubits once you get into the outer court to get to the gate to the inner court. So 100 cubits is 150 feet, 50 yards, half a football field to get over there to um, the next gate that you would go through, although you're not allowed to go through it um, because it goes into the inner court. Okay, Then verse 19, then he measured the width from the lower, I just read that, from the lower gate to the front of the exterior of the inner court, a hundred cubits on the east and on the north. As for the gate of the outer court which faced the north, then he goes into this description. And this description, you'll notice in verse 22 where it says, the same measurements as the gate which faced toward the east. So you've got a gate on the east going in, you've got a gate on the north going in, that is the same description as the one on the east, and then you keep reading, the inner court had a gate opposite the gate on the north as well as the gate on the east, and he measured, and so you've got opposite the north would be what? The south. So you've got three gates, one on the east, one on the north, one on the south. Now, I'll tell you, the one on the east is shut and nobody gets to go in it. And there's a good reason for that, and we'll see that a little later on. But you can't go in the east gate. So you can only go in the north and south gates is the only way. And and the temple, temple proper is on the west wall, faces the east gate. So if you went in the east gate, you'd be looking directly at the temple where you go into the nave and then the Holy of Holies. Okay, so you can't go in that gate. The doors are shut. And we'll see the reason why. Well, I'll tell you the reason why. Because the Lord goes into the temple through that gate. And then it's shut. And nobody gets... To, when he left the old temple, and we'll look at this in detail later, when he left the temple originally, and this is the temple that Solomon built um, before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it, the glory of the Lord left it, and he left it going to the west. Okay, so he comes going to the east, so he comes back from the east, heading toward the west from the same way that he left. And he goes through that gate, goes through the inner gate, goes into the nave, and dwells there for the whole millennial reign. And the gate is shut from the east side, so nobody else can go through it, because that's the Lord's gate, and that's the way it's left. So um, that's a very special gate, and we'll see that it's used in a special way later on. There's one person can't go through the gate, but he can approach the gate. So he's a very special and unique individual. He's called the prince, and we'll talk about that when we get over to where it describes what his tasks and duties are. So, a lot going on here that you don't get in first glimpse. Um, Very special place. Okay, so, um, it says in verse 17 that there are 30 chambers that face the outer courtyard. So, that would give you 10 on each wall, the south, the north, and the east, And you can see that in that diagram, it does a pretty good job. And the gates are in the middle, so there's five on each side of the gate on a particular wall. And so you got these 30 chambers. Those 30 chambers mainly are for the people. Get out of the sun, to go and rest. I mean they're pretty good size. I mean if you think about it, how big 10 chambers would be down a wall that is 500 cubits long. I mean, they're pretty good size chambers. And so those are for the people. There's a few areas where they're not for the people, like in the corners where you'll see it described there as the kitchens, where they um, prepare some of the meals, not for the priests, but for other people. Um, so um, we'll, and we'll see where they slaughter the animals and all of that when we get to the inner court. Okay, so uh, all the gates are the same, all six of them. And when we get to the inner gates, you'll see they're described in exactly the same way. Verses, and this will be a big section that we won't read, 28 through 37 describe the three gates that lead from the outer courtyard to the inner courtyard. And all three times he'll say, of the same measurements as the East Gate, so they're all the same. They're not any different. Um, it looks like to me, I could be wrong, that there may be some porches around those gates, uh, the inner ones that look back out over the court, the outer courtyard. So you get this panoramic view as you, you know, are up there on the porches, um, but uh, that aren't described on the. Gates that go to the outer courtyard um, but I could be wrong, but that's the way I kind of read it when I read it uh, There appear to be some additional porches up on the on those gates um, but again I could be wrong this is I mean as you read this it's um, say Ezekiel couldn't you just give it to us straight without having to say you go around this side and you go around that side and you measure this, you measure that, and you back up. And you me-. I mean, he doesn't just go through and describe what he sees. And so, you know, of course, he's not the one doing it. It's some uh, angel who's leading him through and measuring all these things. So he's just telling you what he sees because that's what he was told to do. Okay, so and and all three of those gates are described as having eight steps to get up into them. So these are elevated, and you can see out, and you can see around what's going on. As you continue, as you move inward into the temple, you get higher and higher. And so the courtyards are elevated above the other courtyards. And uh, so at the wall, you have this depressed area then you go to the outer courtyard, and then you go to the inner courtyard, and you're climbing steps all the time to get there. So, um, okay, somewhere I had a third sheet that I wanted to keep going. Well, you have the third sheet, so um, so that's um, gets us to the inner courtyard. Now, the inner courtyard is very different because it's got um, the altar is there. It's got tables for well, it's got areas to wash the animals off. Okay, to cleanse them, water. And then it's got tables to slaughter the animals on. And then it's got tables to move the carcasses to. And then you have the altar where you offer the sacrifice. And so he gives descriptions of all of that. And we'll look at that as we go in. And then he gives descriptions of what's inside the nave and the Holy of Holies. Um, And there is... um, no Ark of the Covenant, there is no, um, you know, the presence of the Lord is there, and it says that. Um, So that, such that the priests have to change their clothes to go in there, and then change their clothes when they come out of there, um, because they are in the presence of, of God. It says this is where God dwells, is in the nave and the Holy of Holies, Uh, Says It's where he puts his feet, the scripture says. So you have to think about this. Is this where Jesus Christ is? Who is, Andy, aptly described as a man. He's still God, but he's a man also. And is this where the throne of Jesus Christ is? I happen to think no. Because if he was, I think it would describe that. So the throne could be somewhere else where Jesus Christ is dwelling. This is where God the Father is dwelling because he comes in all his glory across the desert and enters in and that's where he says he dwells forever. So, um, you have to, we don't know for sure because it doesn't give it to us explicitly. We know that God is in the nave and the Holy of Holies, but we don't know where Jesus Christ is. Where is his throne at? Um, Don't know. But we do know he's the king, meaning the king over the whole world, um, and he's reigning, but we're not given where the throne is. It's it's not described anywhere in the temple. So it could be that it's outside of the temple. And if you think about it, that kind of makes sense because even though we're honoring Jesus Christ as God in this temple when we give sacrifices and that kind of stuff, His reign um, is more political than it is spiritual because everybody's not true believers on the planet. There's a lot of unbelievers, and so his reign is more of a political nature. This is a religious reign in the temple, and so I kind of parse those and separate them. A lot of people don't, and that's why they say this temple is not real. It doesn't really exist during the millennial kingdom. There is no millennial kingdom. This just represents the church where Christ reigns, and I just can't go there. And even even those who who do not, there are many who do not spiritualize and allegorize, and see it literal. They, they may, I'm often fascinated by the description of the altar. Yeah. Because there's a sin offering. Right. Oh, there is. is. For atonement. Right. Well, in the prince, who's the guy who orchestrates all the offerings, he has to offer a, a sacrifice for himself. And a matter of fact, he can't do it because he's not a priest. He has to get the priest to do it for him. But he has to bring a sin offering. A little wiry guy. Yeah, apparently, <laughs> so um, and and he's So, I mean he's wiry because he runs the ranch that raises all the animals that feed all the sacrifices. So we'll see more about the prince coming later. And I'm kind of going to go through the rest of the description, kind of like I did this, in big blocks. I'm not going to try and get into the nitty-gritty of the details, okay? Um, I mean, we did do some nitty-gritty, but um, we'll finish chapter 40, go into 41 next time. And 40, 41, and 42, all are descriptions of the temple. Now, when we get to the inner court, we may spend a little more time there. Uh, than the outer court. But get the picture. There's these walls that are a mile in size. And then in the center of all of that, you've got this temple that we're talking about now where, that has walls that are um, a measurement of the rod, 11 feet by 11 feet. And, um, and then everything that's being described is inside of those walls. That's where the gates are to get into the temple. But that outer wall that we talked about, that's a mile by a mile, that separates the holy from the profane, the scripture says. In the chapter 42, that's the very last thing that's said, that that wall separates the holy from the profane. So as soon as you go in that side of that wall, you're on holy ground. And then you begin to approach the temple that's elevated. Okay. That's where we'll pick up next time is uh, toward the end of chapter 40. Thanks for your time.